This podcast goes with the induction augmentation of labor module for nursing 676. This is an audio version of chapter 13 of Oxhorn and Foot, Induction of Labor. Introduction. Induction of labor is the artificial initiation of labor before its spontaneous onset. It should be considered when the benefits of earlier delivery outweigh the potential risks to the mother and baby associated with induction of labor and prolongation of pregnancy. A careful and well-documented discussion should be made between the healthcare provider and the patient and should include the reason for induction, method of induction, and risks associated with induction of labor. Some of the common indications for induction labor are discussed below. Some maternal indications, pre-labor, spontaneous rupture of membranes. If membrane rupture occurs beyond 37 weeks and labor does not begin after 24 hours, induction of labor is appropriate and recommended to reduce the risk of infection to both mother and baby. If preterm, less than 37 weeks, spontaneous rupture of membranes occur, induction of labor should be considered after 34 weeks. Preeclampsia. Induction of labor should be considered in women with gestational hypertension in the presence of preeclampsia, toxemia, or other adverse conditions to the mother or baby, induction of labor is recommended. Polyhydramnios. There is no evidence to support routine labor induction in otherwise uncomplicated pregnancies with polyhydramnios. Induction of labor is sometimes carried out if an unstable lie places the woman at high risk for an umbilical cord prolapse if the membranes rupture spontaneously. Antepartum bleeding. Induction of labor may be indicated in cases of stable, low-lying placenta and placental abruption in which bleeding is persistent. Intrauterine fetal death. In cases of IUFD where there is evidence of ruptured membranes, infection, bleeding, or coagulopathy, immediate induction of labor is recommended. If the woman is otherwise well, labor induction may be delayed. Induction of labor may also be considered in women with a history of IUFD near-term and past pregnancies. The The timing of induction should be individualized, but is usually carried out one week prior to the gestation of the previous stillbirth. Elective. When induction of labor is being carried out for the convenience of the patient and or the physician, it is called an elective induction. Elective inductions should be avoided as much as possible. In exceptional circumstances, for example, a history of rapid labor or the patient lives far from a hospital, induction may be considered at or after 40 weeks. Fetal indications. Post-term pregnancy, there is strong evidence to support a recommendation of induction of labor between 41 and 42 weeks of gestation. Beyond 42 weeks, there is an increased risk of perinatal death and meconium aspiration to the baby. For the mother, the risk of cesarean section is reduced when induction of labor is carried out between 41 and 42 weeks gestation. Maternal diabetes, there is a risk of fetal death in utero associated with insulin-dependent diabetes during the later weeks of pregnancy. In cases of pre-existing diabetes or insulin-dependent diabetes, or in the presence of complications associated with diabetes, labor induction is indicated. The timing of induction should be individualized. 
intrauterine growth restriction, or IUGR. Some experts advocate induction of labor in cases of suspected IUGR to reduce the risk of stillbirth. Macrosomia. There is a higher risk of shoulder dystocia and brachial plexus injury when a baby has a birth weight above 4,500 grams. This risk is increased if the mother has diabetes or if a previous delivery had shoulder dystocia. Because an accurate estimate of fetal weight is difficult, induction of labor when there is suspected macrosomia should not be carried out routinely. Chorioamnionitis. Induction of labor is indicated in cases of suspected chorioamnionitis. Isoimmunization. When the fetus is being sensitized or when there has been isoimmunization or fetal death in utero during previous pregnancies, induction of labor is indicated. The timing of induction should be individualized. Oligohydramnios. There is no evidence to support routine labor induction in otherwise uncomplicated pregnancies with isolated oligohydramnios. However, some experts advocate induction of labor to reduce perinatal mortality and morbidity. Contraindications for labor induction. Placenta previa or vasa previa. Non-cephalic presentation. Induction of labor is contraindicated if the baby is in a transverse lie or is a footling breach. It is generally not recommended if the baby is in a breach presentation. Prior classical cesarean section or inverted T uterine incision. Prior significant uterine surgery, for example, full thickness myomectomy. Prior uterine rupture, active genital herpes, invasive cervical carcinoma. The risks associated with labor induction. Iatrogenic preterm or late preterm birth, increased operative vaginal delivery, prolonged labor, increased cesarean delivery, umbilical cord prolapse, tachycystole, abnormal fetal heart rate patterns, uterine rupture. Prerequisites and conditions for successful labor induction. Presentation. The presentation should be cephalic. Labor is never induced in the presence of attitudes of extension, transverse lies, or compound presentations, and almost never when the breach presents. Station. The head must be engaged to avoid umbilical cord prolapse when amniotomy is performed. The lower the head, the easier and safer the procedure. Cervical ripeness. One of the most important predictors for induction success is the pre-labor status of the cervix. The cervix must be effaced, less than 1.3 centimeters or half an inch in length, soft, dilatable, and open to admit at least one finger and preferably two. The firm ring of the internal os should not be present. It is advantageous for the cervix to be in the center of the birth canal or anterior. When the cervix is posterior, conditions for induction are less favorable. Parity. The success rate for vaginal delivery within 24 hours is better for multiparous women than nulliparous women. Maternal height and weight. Successful induction is associated with women who are taller and have a lower body mass index. Gestational age. The closer the gestation is to term, the more successful is the induction, likely because of a more favorable cervix. When preterm termination of pregnancy is necessary, tests for fetal lung maturity can be performed. Pre-induction cervical ripening. The changes in the uterine cervix 
that take place before the onset of labor include physically detectable softening, softening, shortening, and dilation of the os. This process is known as ripening. The collagen fibrils become disaggregated and no longer tightly bound by the glycosaminoglycans, so they will slide apart more readily and allow the cervix to dilate. In most normal pregnancies, the cervix is ripe at the onset of labor. A ripe cervix is soft, less than 1.3 centimeters in length, admits a finger easily, and is dilatable. The length of labor and the success of induction in both nulliparous and multiparous women depend on the degree of cervical ripeness. There are many situations, however, in which labor and vaginal delivery are indicated when the cervix is not ripe. In such cases, the cervix is unlikely to respond favorably to uterine activity. Evaluating the cervix. Before inducing labor or using a modality to prime or ripen the cervix, one must differentiate between a cervix that is unprepared and one that is already ripe. The most readily used methods to make the assessment depend on the physical characteristics of the cervix. Bishop was the first to attempt to quantify the physical examination of the cervix by the use of a numeric scoring system. This is based on a number of criteria including dilation, effacement, consistency, position of the cervix, and the vagina. Each of the criteria is evaluated and assigned a number of points. All of these parameters of all of these parameters, dilation is the most significant and the position of the cervix the least important. The higher the score, the shorter will the length of labor be and the more likely will the induction be successful. For the Bishop's score, if the cervix is dilated to zero, you get zero points. If the cervix is dilated one to two centimeters, that equals one point. If it's dilated three to four centimeters, that's two points. If it's dilated five to six centimeters, it's three points. For effacement of the cervix, it's in percentages. If it's zero to 30%, it's a, it gets zero points. If it's 40 to 50%, it gets one point. If it's 60 to 70%, two points. And if it's 80% or more, you get three points. For the consistency of the cervix, if it's firm, it's zero. If it's medium, it's one. If it's soft, it's two. There's no three points awarded for consistency. For the position of the cervix in the vagina, if it's posterior, it's a zero. If it's mid position, it's a one. And if it's anterior, it's a two. Again, there's no points awarded. There's no three points awarded for position of the cervix in the vagina. For station, fetal station, minus three is zero, minus two is one, minus one or zero is two points, and if it's plus one or plus two, it's three points. When a high score is present, it can be assumed that the cervical ripening has taken place and no further attempts to prime the cervix are needed. According to Bishop's system, the maximal total score is 13, when the score is nine or more, there's a high likelihood that induction of labor will be successful. When the score is four or less, failure of induction is common and pre-induction cervical ripening should be performed. Lang and Associates 
suggested that the factor of crucial significance to inducibility of labor is the condition of the cervix and that cervical dilation should be weighted by at least twice the value given it by Bishop. The results of their modified score are the same as those achieved by other methods, but theirs is simpler in that only three parameters are used, station of the presenting part, dilation of the cervix, and length of the cervix. When the score is five to seven, the rate of successful induction is over 75%. When it's under four, the rate of failure is considerable. So for the Lang score, remember, you're just gonna use dilation of the cervix, length of the cervix, and what was the other thing? There were three things. Um, presenting, station of the presenting part. Yep, station of the presenting part, dilation of the cervix, and length of the cervix. So mechanical methods of cervical priming. Mechanical methods to ripen the cervix have the advantage of low cost, stability at room temperature, low risk of tachycystole, and few systemic side effects. However, there is generally a small increased risk of infection depending on the type of mechanical method used to both the mother and baby. There's hygroscopic dilators. They're safe and effective for dilating the cervix, but are inadequate for induction of labor. Hygroscopic dilators may be in synthetic products or made from dried natural seaweed, laminaria tents. They are primarily used for pregnancy termination rather than for pre-induction cervical ripening of term pregnancies. Hygroscopic dilators expand when coming into contact with moisture. It gradually swells within the cervical canal to three to five times its original diameter. In so doing, it brings about gradual softening and dilation of the cervix. The most rapid swelling occurs in the first four to six hours, and the maximal effect is achieved in 24 hours. The effect is generally, is I'm sorry, the effect is entirely local. Uterine hyperactivity is rare. There's some evidence that the insertion of the hygroscopic dilators leads to the production of endogenous prostaglandin, and this may play a part in the ripening process. The technique in the evening before the day of induction two to five laminaria are placed in the cervix. The number depends on the capacity of the cervix. As many as possible are inserted. Insertion of multiple small diameter, small diameter hygroscopic dilators, which are two to three millimeters, is better than using a few large ones. The number of dilators inserted should be documented. Care is taken not to rupture the membranes. One or two four by four sterile gauze is placed against the cervix to hold the laminaria in place. The number of gauze inserted should also be documented. The next morning, the dilators are removed. Amniotomy is performed when the presenting part is well applied against the cervix. An infusion of oxytocin may be started immediately. However, some obstetricians prefer to use oxytocin only if labor does not begin after a few hours. Complications. Mild pelvic cramps occur occasionally Cervical bleeding has been reported. There is a small risk of infection, especially if the interval between the insertion of the tents and the emptying of the uterus is prolonged. Moving on to intracervical balloon catheters. Commercially available balloons for cervical ripening or a regular Foley catheter, number 16 with a 30 to 80 cc balloon can be used. Use of a balloon catheter results in a mean change of 3.3 to 5.3 in the Bishop score. They are, generally, they are generally as effective as prostaglandins for cervical ripening. 
Compared with those receiving prostaglandins, women who had balloon catheters for cervical ripening required more use of oxytocin for labor induction and augmentation. Balloon catheters are also associated with less uterine hyperstimulation or tachycystole compared with prostaglandins. Balloon catheters for cervical ripening are generally reserved for use in women with intact membranes. There is a small but non-significant increase risk in maternal infection. Technique. With the speculum in the vagina and the cervical os well visualized, a deflated balloon catheter is passed through the internal cervical os and into the extra amniotic space. Ring forceps can be used to aid in passing the catheter through the cervical os. When the extra amniotic space, with, when in the extra amniotic space, the balloon is filled with 50 with 30 to 60 cc's of saline or water. This dilates the balloon to about two to three centimeters. The clinician ensures that the balloon is not just resting in the vagina. The catheter is retracted so the balloon rests against the internal os. Some clinicians believe in pulling on the balloon so there is some weight or traction against the internal os. The catheter is left in place until it spontaneously falls out, usually when the cervix is more favorable, and about two to three centimeters dilated. This usually occurs within 12 to 24 hours of catheter placement. If the catheter does not fall out spontaneously, it should be removed in 24 hours to avoid increased risk of infection. An amniotomy is performed or oxytocin induction is usually started after the balloon catheter has been removed. Here's a little caveat that's not oxhorn and foot. You can actually do oxytocin while also doing a Cook catheter fully. And you can use them with ruptured membranes. Moving on, pharmacologic methods of cervical priming. Prostaglandin. Prostaglandins have been shown to be effective in ripening the cervix and sometimes as an initiator of active labor. It is likely that the effect is twofold. Prostaglandin brings about biochemical changes in the collagenous matrix of the cervix that result in softening and prostaglandin stimulates the uterus to contract gently, leading to retraction and partial dilation of the cervix. Prostaglandin E2 and E1 are the prostaglandins currently used for cervical ripening. The optimal route, dose, and frequency of prostaglandin administration have not been determined. Locally administered prostaglandin preparations, intravaginal or endocervical, appear to have good clinical response while minimizing systemic side effects and are therefore the preferred routes. Side effects from prostaglandin include fever, chills, vomiting, and diarrhea. Prostaglandins are also associated with excessive uterine activity. Fetal heart rate monitoring should be done after administration of prostaglandin. Prostaglandin E2 or dinoprostone preparations are widely used for cervical ripening. It is available for intracervical or vaginal administration. Depending on the preparation of PGE2, it remains, the posterior, it remains in the posterior vaginal fornix for 6 to 12 hours or until active labor begins. Mesoprostol or Cytotec is a PGE1 analog that is approved for use for treatment and prevention of peptic ulcers. It has been used off-label for cervical ripening and labor induction. The dose required for cervical ripening and labor induction in the third trimester is much lower than in the first or second trimester because the myometrium 
as increased sensitivity to prostaglandins with advancing gestational age. It is usually available as 100 or 200 microgram tablets, so the mesoprostol tablets need to be broken down. The recommended dose is 25 micrograms vaginally or 50 micrograms orally every four to six hours. If necessary, oxytocin may be initiated no, early than, no earlier than four hours after the last mesoprostol dose was given. In all, prostaglandin PGE1 and PGE2 preparations, contractions of low amplitude can begin within a couple of hours. These are similar to the contractions of early spontaneous labor. Not infrequently, active labor begins during the period of cervical ripening so that use of oxytocin is less when prostaglandins are used. It is recommended that prostaglandins be administered in settings where uterine activity and fetal heart rate patterns can be monitored. It is prudent to monitor the fetal heart rate pattern for up to two hours post-administration or longer if there's increased uterine activity noted. There is increased incidence of tachycystole with prostaglandin use. Prostaglandins are not recommended as induction agents in women who've had a previous uterine scar because of the increased incidence of uterine tachycystole and uterine rupture. If labor has not started within 24 hours and the cervix has become favorable, amniotomy is performed and if necessary, an oxytocin infusion is set up. When the cervix does not respond, the case must be reevaluated. Oxytocin. Oxytocin does induce contractions of the pregnant myometrium, but it has not been proven to be an effect efficient priming agent of the cervix. Given as an intravenous infusion, oxytocin does improve the Bishop score, but to a much smaller extent than achieved by prostaglandins or mechanical balloon catheters. Oxytocin is an inefficient ripening agent. Moving on to methods of inducing labor. Castor oil and soapsuds enemas have not been proven to be effective in inducing labor in any randomized studies and therefore should not be used. Membrane stripping. Membrane stripping or sweeping is a common practice. It involves examining the cervix reaching beyond the internal cervical os with the examining finger and rotating the finger circumferentially to detach the fetal membranes from the lower uterine segment. When performed at 40 weeks of gestation, membrane stripping may reduce the need for labor induction for post-term pregnancy because a majority of women enter spontaneous labor within 72 hours. There does not appear to be an increase in the risk of bleeding, infection, or membrane rupture with membrane stripping. Artificial rupture of membranes. Artificial rupture of membranes or amniotomy can be a simple and effective means of inducing labor when the cervix is favorable and the presenting part is well applied against the cervix. However, in some cases, amniotomy alone will not be enough to initiate labor and oxytocin infusion is usually required to establish labor. The technique, fetal heart rate is checked carefully. Sterile, examina sterile vaginal examination is made to determine that the necessary conditions and prerequisites are present with a finger placed between the cervix and the bag of waters, the cervix is rimmed, stripping the membranes away from the lower uterine segment. If necessary, pressure is maintained on the uterine fundus through the abdomen to keep the head well down. Using a uterine dressing forceps, an Alice forceps, a Kelly clamp, or a membrane hook, the bag of water is punctured or torn. A gush of fluid from the vagina is proof of success. The fetal heart is checked carefully after a successful amniotomy. 
Although the head may be pushed upward slightly to allow escape of the amniotic fluid, this must be done with caution because there is danger of an umbilical cord prolapse. Artificial rupture of the membranes can be performed through a vaginal amnioscope. Advantage, advantages include the procedure is carried out under direct vision, which adds to safety. The color of the fluid and the presence of meconium can be ascertained before the membranes are ruptured. The presence of a low-lying umbilical cord or vasa previa can be ruled out. Amniotic fluid, uncontaminated by vaginal contents, can be collected for biochemical analysis. The amnioscope provides a sterile pathway to the cervix and reduces the danger of amnionitis. I am going to add a little caveat here that I have never in my life heard of a vaginal amnioscope. Contraindications to the artificial rupture of membranes. High presenting part, presentation other than vertex, unripe cervix, or active genital herpes and HIV infection with high viral load. Moving on to oxytocin. Oxytocin, an octopeptide, is produced in the supraoptic and paraventricular nuclei of the hypothalamus. The hormone migrates down the supraoptic neurohypophysial nerve pathways and is stored in the posterior pituitary gland. Oxytocin-releasing stimuli include 1. Cervical dilation, 2. Coitus, 3. Emotional reactions, 4. Suckling, and 5. Drugs such as acetylcholine, nicotine, and certain anesthetics. Maternal levels of oxytocin increase throughout gestation. Secretion seems to occur in a pulsatile fashion. Fetal blood contains much more oxytocin at the end of the second stage of labor than does maternal blood. The blood in the umbilical cord of anencephalic infants, however, has no oxytocin. It is possible that the fetus may be an important source of oxytocin during parturition. In experimental animals, the establishment of neurohypophysial deficiency leads to difficulty in parturition. The same is not true in humans. Pregnant patients who have had a hypophysiectomy or have idiopathic diabetes insipidus experience no difficulty in labor. The exact role of oxytocin in human labor is not known. It may be that oxytocin has only a facilitating role in the phys physiology of uterine activity during pregnancy and not a primary role in the initiation and maintenance of labor. Posterior pituitary extract has been used for many years to stimulate uterine contractions. In the beginning, whole posterior pituitary extract, it was called pituitrin, was used. It contains mainly an oxy oxytocic agent and an antidiuretic hypertensive factor. To eliminate the undesirable side effects of the latter, the extract has been divided into its main two main components. An almost pure oxytotic factor, pitocin, and a hypertensive agent, pitrecin. During the early 1950s, Divino and his colleagues succeeded in the purification, chemical identification, and synthesis of oxytocin and vasopressin. The natural and synthetic products are equally efficient in regard to their action on the myometrium. Synthetic oxytocin is a chemically pure substance and is free from the danger of reaction to animal protein. 
At the present time, all commercial preparations of oxytocin used in obstetrics are synthetic. It is the most commonly used method of induction for women with a viable pregnancy. Artificial rupture of the membranes increases the efficacy and efficiency of inducing labor with oxytocin. The effects of oxytocin in the uterus, in causing the uterus to contract, oxytocin is believed to act on the myometrial cell membrane. It increases the normal excitability of the muscle, but adds no new properties. The myometrial sensitivity to oxytocin rises as the pregnancy progresses because of increasing oxytocin receptors on the myometrium. In the cardiovascular system, oxytocin has numerous effects. Heart rate is a small to moderate increase, systemic arterial blood pressure, a decrease results mainly from a lowering of peripheral resistance. Cardiac output given as a single dose, oxytocin causes a rise in cardiac output followed by a fall. Continuous infusion results in an increased cardiac output. Renal blood flow, no significant change. Skin, the blood vessels are sensitive to the vasodilatory action of oxytocin and flushing of the face, neck, and hands may occur. Uterine flow, the decrease is caused mainly by the extravascular resistance around the uterine blood vessels as a result of the increased uterine contractions. Kidneys, oxytocin can cause antidiuresis. The human kidney is not damaged, the excretion of electrolytes is not changed, and the renal blood flow is not reduced. The antidiuretic action probably occurs by resorption of water from the distal convoluted tubules and the collecting ducts. Breast. Oxy oxytocin stimulates the myoepithelial cells of the breast and causes the passage of milk from the alveoli to the mammary ducts. Administration. Routes of administration include intramuscular or repeated subcutaneous injections of small or large doses and the placing of a cotton pledgent and the placing of a cotton pledget soaked in 5 or 10 units of oxytocin in the nostril whence the drug is absorbed. However, the intravenous infusion of a dilute solution of oxytocin is so superior to other methods that it is the procedure of choice for labor induction to the virtual exclusion of the others. Advantages of the intravenous route. One, the amount of oxytocin entering the bloodstream can be regulated. With other techniques, the amount given to the patient is known, but there's no control over the rate of absorption. It can be fast or slow, regular or intermittent, and it may accumulate in the tissues to be released later in a large amount and high concentration. Number two, minute amounts are effective. Number three, the blood level and the activity of oxytocin are constant as long as the rate of the drip is maintained. It can be speeded up or slowed down with instant changes in effect. Number four, the plasma of pregnant women near term contains an enzyme, pitocinase, in such high concentration that half of an intravenously given dosage of pitocin is, is destroyed in two to three minutes. Thus, within three to four minutes of shutting off an intravenous infusion, the oxytocin effect activity has ceased. Number five, the contractions brought on by this technique seem to be mainly of the normal triple descending gradient type. 
technique of IV inter of intravenous administration. The two methods of intravenous infusion are by the use of a constant infusion pump or by a Murphy drip. For safety reasons, the constant rate infusion pump should be used. Changes in the patient's position or movement will not affect the speed at which the solution is being infused. Whichever system is used, it is advisable to start the drip at a rate of one milliunit per minute to test for untoward reactions. If none occurs, the oxytocin infusion should be gradually increased by one to two milliunits per minute or four to six milliunits per minute at 20 to 30 minute intervals. I'm going to stop here and say that I would never do it at four to six milliunits per minute. So there we go. Until adequate uterine contractions are achieved, the physiologic dose of oxytocin that will produce regular uterine contractions is 8 to 12 milliunits per minute. The maximum safe dose is 20 milliunits per minute. In most cases, doses of less than 10 milliunits per minute are adequate. The aim is to bring about strong uterine contractions lasting 40 to 50 seconds and recurring every 2 to 3 minutes. Every two minutes is a little bit close. Care must be exercised to avoid tumultuous contractions so frequent and prolonged that there is no interval between them. This carries the danger of uterine rupture, placental separation, and fetal asphyxia. The popular strengths of the solutions are 5, 10, or 20 units of oxytocin in one liter of crystalloid solution, for example, normal saline or Ringer's lactate. The advantages of a dilute solution are that the dose is physiologic rather than pharmacologic. The control is easier and the danger of excessive uterine contractions is reduced. The disadvantage is that too much fluid may be given. When used for induction or augmentation of labor, it is advisable to maintain the infusion for one hour postpartum to obviate uterine atony. To avoid water intoxication or Remember we talked about hyponatremia. The amount of oxytocin and fluid must be controlled. Less than 45 milliunits per minute of the former and one liter per 24 hours of the latter. When the drip method is used, the two bottle system is advised. One bottle contains one liter of crystalloid solution. The other contains one liter of crystalloid to which the oxytocin has been added. This must be labeled clearly. The two tubes leading from the bottles are connected by a Y adapter, which connects to the needle in the vein. The Y adapter should be closed to the needle so that a, char a change from one solution to the other will be immediate. The drip is started with the crystalloid solution. When it is running at 10 to 15 drops a minute, the switch is made to the oxytocin solution. Careful observation is made as to the type, strength, and duration of the contractions and to their effect on the fetal heart. If no untoward reactions are noted, the drip is continued. If excessive uterine contractions occur or if there is fetal bradycardia or tachycardia or irregularity of the heart, the oxytocin is stopped and plain crystalloid is infused. Oxytocin is a potent drug. It may vary a hundredfold in its action on different people. The dosage is regulated by the effect on the individual receiving it. The speed of the drip is determined by 
and correlated to the frequency, intensity, and duration of the resulting contractions rather than by any arbitrary number of drops per minute. So I'm going to just interject here and say that it's going to be very, very, very rare in the U.S. that you would ever administer Pitocin by this method. You're going to use a pump. However, if you do have the opportunity to work in a developing country, you may have to use the drip method. And so I would say make sure you do ahead of time review how to titrate drips using the drip method. So prerequisites for the use of oxytocin. The presenting part should be well engaged. The cervix must be ripe, effaced, soft, and partially dilated. There must be no fetopelvic disproportion. The fetus should be in a normal position. The fetus should be in good condition with normal fetal heart. Adequate personnel must be available to watch the patient. The patient must be examined carefully before the oxytocin is started. The physician in charge of the case should be in hospital and available while the drip is running. Contraindications to the use of oxytocin. Number one is absence of proper indication. Two is absence of the prerequisites. Three is disproportion, generally contracted pelvis, and obstruction by tumors. Four, grand multiparity. Hmm, that's an interesting one. I didn't know that it was a contraindication. Oxhorn and Foot says there's too great a chance of uterine rupture. I would say that's a relative contraindication. Previous classical cesarean section or extensive myomectomy is an absolute contraindication. Hypertonic or incoordinate uterus. The hypertonic or incoordinate uterus is made worse by oxytocin and may lead to a constriction ring. We'll talk about that later, but it's called Bandel's ring. Maternal exhaustion. This condition, this condition should be treated by rest and fluids, not by oxytocin stimulation. Abnormal fetal heart rate pattern. Not only should, oxyto should oxytocin not be given, but the appearance of an irregular or slow heart while the drip is running demands that the drip be stopped. Number nine, abnormal presentation and position of all types. 10, unengaged head. 11, congenital anomalies of the uterus, 12 placenta previa. Dangers of oxytocin, maternal dangers. Number one, tachycystole. It's defined as having more than five contractions in 10 minutes over a 30 minute period. This can be associated with a normal or abnormal fetal heart rate pattern. Prolonged or excessive uterine contractions can occur with the use of prostaglandins and oxytocin. Number two, uterine rupture. If the patient is oversensitive to the drug, she may get hard or even tetanic contractions enough to rupture, rupture the uterus, but normal contractions should do no harm. The risk of uterine rupture is doubled when she's had a previous cesarean suction. Number three, cervical and vaginal lacerations can be caused by too rapid passage of the baby through the pelvis. Number four, uterine atony and postpartum hemorrhage may develop when the oxytocin is discontinued. This is more likely to occur in situations of prolonged labor. Five, abruptio placenta has been reported. Six, water intoxication is induced by retention in the body of large amounts of water in excess of electrolytes. Water intoxication. 
Oxytocin has an antidiuretic effect that begins when the rate of infusion is 15 millionits per minute and it's maximal at 45 millionits per minute. Single doses have no effect. The antidiuretic activity seems to depend on the maintenance of a constant and critical level. The action is on the distal convoluted tubules and collecting ducts of the kidneys, causing increased resorption of water from the glomerular filtrate. The combination of oxytocin and large amounts of electrolyte-free glucose in water leads to retention of fluid, low serum levels of sodium chloride, and often progressive oliguria. So watch your urine output when you are inducing somebody with oxytocin. The symptoms range from headache, nausea, vomiting, mental confusion, and seizures to coma and death. These have been attributed to edema and swelling of the brain. So management of water intoxication. Number one, prevention. A more concentrated solution of oxytocin can be used. 20 to 30 units of oxytocin in one liter of crystalloid solution. Remember what we use is 30 units in 500. Patients receiving an infusion of oxytocin should not receive more than one liter of electrolyte-free fluid in 24 hours. For mild cases, discontinue the oxytocin and withhold IV fluids. Severe cases require, in addition, the infusion of hypertonic or 3% sodium chloride intravenously. This will withdraw fluid from the tissues and bring about a diuresis. The rate of infusion must be slow and should be discontinued when the diuretic phase ends to avoid overcorrection, lest the cerebral effects of hypernatremia be imposed upon those of water intoxication. Fetal dangers from oxytocin. Number one, anoxia, caused by contractions that are too hard, too frequent, and last too long. The uterus never relaxes enough to maintain adequate circulation. In some cases, separation of the placenta or placental abruption has taken place. Number two, forcing the fetus through a pelvis too small for it. Number three, abnormal fetal heart rate patterns. In a large series, it was shown that the signs of abnormal fetal heart rate patterns are more common in patients receiving an oxytocin drip than in those without stimulation of labor. In almost all instances, slowing or stopping the oxytocin infusion resulted in the rapid return to normal of the fetal heart. The incident of emergency obstetric intervention was no higher and the final fetal results were comparable. This is the end of this chapter of Oxhorn and Foot.